Thanks again for listening to the Park Hills podcast. If you want more information on things we're doing in the sermon series that we're a part of, go to parkhillschurch.com or the Park Hills Church app. Pastor Alex, how are you doing today? I'm great. How are you, Chris? I'm great. I'm great. So here we go. Mark 12, verse 28 through 34. Let me read it, and then we'll we'll dive into it. we got two different topics to kind of dive into today. And one of the scribes came up and heard, him, heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important at all? And Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no one beside him. And to love him with all of the heart and all of the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. That's just a strange sentence. Yeah. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And I think, first of all, Pastor Rich did an amazing job with this sermon, with this passage, just knocked it out of the park. And so that really the two things we're going to talk about today are first, just the place of the Shema in, you know, contemporary and ancient Judaism. And then also just sort of what what did life look like in the second temple period. So let's start with that second topic. What, what did life look like in the second temple period? First, why don't we define what the second temple period is? Yeah, so this was the second temple that the Jewish people built. So the first one is Solomon's temple, right? David wants right. to build a temple. God says, no, let your son do it. Which was built sometime after 1000 BC. Right. So, so somewhere between 1000 and 980 BC, somewhere in there. Beautiful, been. grand, amazing temple. And then that got destroyed by the Babylonians, right? They did yep. that one. 586. Yep, 586. They destroy that one. Judah is taken into exile. Israel's yep. already long gone yep. in their exile. Then, oh man, now you're putting on this spot. Cyrus lets them go, right? Yeah. Cyrus lets and Nehemiah. And Darius, yep. Yeah, and Darius. Nehemiah, Ezra, we know, I think we're more familiar with Nehemiah building the walls. Right. But that happened after Ezra returned in Ezra rebuilt the temple and there's that famous passage where uh, off the top of my head I don't remember but they just there was shouts of joy and grief sorrow yeah at the building of the second temple because it was not nearly it there was right. a temple so it's like joy that the temple's back but sorrow that it is not as amazing as sure. Solomon's so second temple is built by Ezra but Herod does some things with second temple mm-hmm. to make it look beautiful he invests a lot of time and money to try to earn the favor of the Jews. So that Herod's temple is the second temple, the, the re, not remodified. Yeah, What's it? Remodeled. remodeled. Yeah. yeah. And remodified is a way to look at it because it's not the same structure as Ezra. So, if, I mean, when we read in the gospel and it says, look at the size of these stones, master, clearly that is not something that's causing grief. Right. 
So if you go back in the history of what you just described, and that was a great, I put you on the spot, but you did a great job of, of moving through the uh, seminary I, that you we know, learned. Yeah, I should remember most no, of these It's things. all good. You get to the point, a uh, little, little side note here. My One of my old pastors used to always say, you know, when you're young, you know all those answers. <laughs> when you're like middle of your ministry, you remember where to find all those answers. And then when you're older in your ministry, you remember who to ask where to find all those minutes. So I'm I'm definitely in the middle, like, I think, yeah, there's some, some d- details. Who knows this? Or yeah. where, where do I find that answer? I can figure that out quick. I'm totally with you. And so 586 is when it was destroyed. That's the city of Jerusalem and the temple. But then the fact that they are mourning it means that some of them are alive and either have heard stories of the previous temple or had seen it. So it's not that long of a time frame. And it's within the life of Daniel, basically, right. that they move from being completely exiled to Babylon to the Persians taking over and then the Persians allowing them to come back. So if you just stop and think about that, that they saw the original temple, some of them, and then now they're mourning the fact that the second temple doesn't look like the first. And then that second temple exists for, you know, a, a number of hundred years, because uh, it would have been, you know, 515 or 530 BC, all the way up until the time of Herod, which is around 30 BC moving forward. He then remodels the entire thing really to try to earn the respect and the love of the Jews, which we've talked about already on another podcast. So this temple is, is huge. It's amazing. It's one, you know, I would say it's one of the wonders of the world. If, if it would have survived, you know, mm-hmm. it'd be the one of those things, even the temple Mount, and you're going to get to see it in a couple of months. It is so huge that you go, I don't, I can't even imagine walking up to this place. You know, it would have been so alarming. But what Herod did was actually carve the top of the mountain off and then sort of reconstructure, reconfigure the whole thing to make it just bigger, better, badder. So at the time of the second temple, we're talking five, you know, 530 BC, all the way to the time of 70 AD. Yeah. And and this this isn't just the structure. I, it really does fit the cultural context because the first the second temple was built at the return from exile, which kind of marks a new time frame, a new era for those people. So a lot of times Second Temple Judaism is not just referring to the time that it was there, but to the culture as well. Those became interchangeable or what's what's the word that they use where basically you can say Second Temple to mean this time period is basically where we're at. So Jesus lived in an Old Testament context. He didn't live in the New Testament. He lived in the Old Testament in the Second Temple period yeah. of Judaism. And some of the things that mark the Second Temple period, and this is what we want to spend a little time on, is they were all about apocalypticism. Mm-hmm. They, they were very interested in God's revealing of himself in some way. So some of them were already talking about things that you and I would maybe hear and go, oh, that sounds like Revelation. You know, you know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. in their mind, they're thinking of, the Messiah is going to come. Everything's going to be made different. The kingdom of God is going to be here on earth. This is going to happen. It's going to happen now. So they're they're reading and rereading and recopying things like Daniel, things like First Enoch, uh, some of the minor prophets that are more apocalyptic slash end times focused. They're doing a ton of that. And you've got individuals like the Essenes living, you know, various places throughout Israel 
who have created their own calendar are saying well, this is when the Lord is going to come. The calendar is going to end at this date. I mean, it sounds like the you know the Mayan date of 12, yeah. 2012 that we talked about years ago, and we all thought maybe you know who knows. It, it, that's really the fervor of the people is they're like the Lord is coming back now. Let's be mm-hmm. ready. Let's let's be focused on that. So the temp- second temple period, yes, it's it's exile returned. You've now returned from the exile. You've got your temple back. Your structure, your religious structure, everything about it is totally set. Jerusalem is the place you want to be because who knows what's going to happen. God might show up back up right now. We want to be in his city when he arrives. Uh, it, it, it's sort of not different than what we sometimes have today of like people standing on the street corners with the end is near, mm-hmm. you know? And that's sort of the lifestyle, the the world that people are living in at, that, at this time. And so when we read this passage and they're coming up to Jesus going, what's the most important commandment? You can almost imagine them thinking, because we want to be right if he comes back. Mm-hmm. You know, like we want to, and they would maybe wouldn't have said, no, they would say maybe he comes back because his presence wasn't covering the temple like it had at Solomon's temple. You right. know what I'm saying? They didn't have the Shekinah glory. It wasn't covering the temple. They weren't, you know, they, they knew that the temple was important. They knew that the sacrificial system was still important. But God's presence wasn't right in the midst of his people, and that was freaking them out a little bit. Right, right. They certainly wouldn't have predicted that Messiah is coming twice that we know now, and we didn't know that until the revelation of Jesus. And we can't. I don't think we can fault the Jewish people for not recognizing no. that. I think we can fault them for not recognizing that Jesus was Messiah, but to think that he was going to die and then come back really was not— re- the disciples didn't even figure that out till the road to Emmaus. Um, but yeah, so there, there's this messianic hope and expectation that Messiah will come. We know that they typically would have thought during second temple period, Messiah would be a political ruler on top of a spiritual ruler. Maybe some of them didn't even think about the spiritual ramifications that we do. But yeah, there was there was certainly this hope, this waiting, like you're saying, this apocalyptic apocalyptic understanding. Yeah, Messiah is going to come and bring about the end, or at least the end of all of their problems, all of the oppression. Um, yeah, because eventually, you know, eventually Rome comes in and takes over, and then mm-hmm. they're an oppressed people group. So there's certainly at that moment even more so waiting for Messiah. And there there were a lot of people who stood up and said, "I am." Messiah, which Messiah, remember, just means anointed one, right? And it becomes mm-hmm. this becomes this figure in scripture, but people come and say, I'm Messiah because I'm going to clear the Romans out of the temple or off the temple mount or things like that. And so for Jesus to claim Messiahship was not unique per se. His, his particular claim was unique, certainly. Um, yeah. But, but yeah. Yeah. That's... So if you can imagine, that's the lifestyle that most of these folks are living. So the, back to that question of what's the most important thing, what's the most important commandment, part of the reason why that's being asked is we don't want to be exiled again. Right. Right. We don't want to have to go through the difficulty of all this. Uh, our parents messed this up. How do we get it right? Or, you know, our ancestors, yeah. our forefathers. So even some of the political dysfunction that we've talked about in other podcasts is happening because everyone's trying to clamor for we have it right. We're the ones that have it right. You should listen to us. We're the way to God. We're going to help you do this. That's a little different than how it comes across today. You know, there's some squabbles and stuff between Christian groups, but it's not, 
it doesn't have the same oomph that you're thinking about if you're thinking about these political groups. You know, the Pharisees are saying, we got it wrong because we weren't pure before God. Right. So that's why you need to aim for purity. The Sadducees are saying, no, the priesthood was corrupt, so therefore this is why you need to trust us. And since you can trust us, this is why we're corrupt. You know, yeah. there's sort of these weird like things that are playing out. And the zealots going, well, no one should be in charge of us but God. So right. we should kill off the Romans and make sure they're gone. And it just makes sense if you're thinking about it. The 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 mindset of a typical second century or sorry, second temple person in the first century AD, they would have been thinking, How do we get this right? How do we stand before God correctly? What's it gonna take? Which is why a guy like John right. the Baptist has such an incredible ministry right off the bat. Right. And I think I think also this this question just it would have been a common question for people to ask and you know, to use the, the Hebrew term of the haver, right? They're gonna mm. they're gonna discuss, they're gonna throw out ideas and philosophy. And that was very much a part of their culture and their religion to throw out ideas and then everybody discuss and then every rabbi then create their answer to that question. And then people would follow those rabbis because they had a particular answer. And we see that with Jesus, right? Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount answers a lot of political questions of the day, a lot of commonly asked questions, what does all this mean? And then even, you know, not to say that his teaching wasn't unique or new, but just, you know, when he starts talking about purity, what is purity? What does it mean to be right? You know, pluck your eyes out, things like Mm -hmm. that. And so here you have a common question that these guys all would have debated, which commandment is the most important? There's 613, so which one of these do we follow the most? They all would have had different answers, or most of them were similar, but this guy's question is not like, oh man, this guy just thought of this great question to ask Jesus. I bet Jesus was asked this question every town he went into. Yeah. We just get a particular instance of Jesus Jesus being asked that question uh, here in Mark chapter 12. Yeah, I think you're totally right there. And I think so often we think of the Gospels as this is the only time this happened. No, this is the time... That was mentioned I wrote here down, in yeah. this. Yeah, but it, it probably, you're right. It probably happened all the time. That's that's a good point. So I think if, we, if we've if we got that that first idea kind of nailed down, you know, the what was life in the second temple period like, that also then sort of leads us to Jesus's response using the Shema is, is incredibly interesting and opens up, you know, some interesting things for us to think about and talk about. And again, Rich covered a couple of these things, but we're going to dive into some of the the pieces of the Shema that, you know, maybe people don't talk about all the time or maybe are more Jewish than they are Christian and we don't really think about it. Um, but let me read the Shema and, then, you know, I, you know, yeah. you and I can just sort of tackle it. It's really verses four through nine. It's the whole thing. And I'll, I'll read all of it. So hear, O Israel, the Lord, your, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit down in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on your doorposts of your house and on your gates. So that's a lot. I mean, that, yeah. that's more than just a, hey, you should love the Lord. <laughs> yeah. Right? It's even giving us just instructions of how to pull that off, what that looks like. And so, yeah, Alex, what do you see there? <clears throat> yeah, well, you see the... Um the repetition, you know, with all your, with all your, with all your that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what's what's interesting, if you read the different Gospels, some of them say all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. There's four aspects, and some of them just say your heart, soul, and mind. Uh, but, yeah, you get the idea that it's 
what what's meant here is not to like part those out. Like, how do you love God with your heart? How do you love God with your soul? But it's kind of this all-encompassing idea. And I think we'll dig into this a little bit more. This has become such a part of Jewish culture because of that, that they've, the, the Shema, the here, is a part of their daily life in a way where they're constantly thinking about it because they don't want to miss that, right? right. They don't want to miss that, that this is all-encompassing. This is supposed to be everything. This is supposed to be more important than your career, more important than your family, more important than your interests. This is number one, and then everything kind of comes after that. So that's kind of what I see. What do you see, yeah. Chris? Yeah, I think that's that's totally true. And I think if you were to, you know, when you see a Jewish person walking around, you will sometimes see them with a phylactery on their wrist or on their forehead. Right. It's a little box. It's got scripture inside of it. It reminds them of what's important. You know, if you go into a, a Jewish person's house, I remember we rented a house from a Jewish person while, while I was in seminary at, yeah. at, in Lincolnshire. And as we walked in the house, there was there were little tiny things attached to the door frame. And I was like, oh, he's yeah. really Jewish. Like, he, he, you know, he's doing his thing here. And so uh, I've seen Jewish people, and you see this on The Chosen, as they walk out, you know, they touch it, yeah. or they, they pray and they thank God for it. So you have this idea of, uh, again, going back to what we start, talked about with the Second Temple period, there's this idea of we never want to be in exile again, so we want God to know how much we love him. So therefore, we're going to take everything that we're reading here extremely seriously. So we are going to put it on our doorposts. We are going to put it on our wrist. We are going to make sure that we know uh, that he knows that we love him. We, we're going to show him our love with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength. And whatever we can do to sort of prove that by listening to this. So we are going to teach it to our kids, which is where, you know, the synagogue system really broke out from this verse. They were saying, oh, we need to teach our children. Okay, then let's right. create a school system to make sure that the, the kids know, know that. And so, you know, every kid learned Torah. And then the ones who were really special got to move on to the other two schools uh, but the Torah kids, you know, then they'd learn Torah and then they would go and they would ply their father's trade, right? Whether it's carpentry or boat building or fishing or whatever. So it's interesting that when, when we read that verse, we think, oh, that's really beautiful. I love that. God's telling us to love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And here's how we do it. And then for most of us Christians, we just kind of stop there. You know, we don't right. go any further with it. Into a Jew, especially in the Second Temple, they would have said, no, we're going to follow this through. We're going to do everything that it's saying that we're going to do. Uh, and like I said, that's still practiced today. Right. And I think it's it's easy for us as modern Christ followers to see some of those practices and say, oh, those are so devoid of meaning because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's just ritual. Just do it over. It doesn't really mean anything to them. You know, it, it became legalism. It became, you know, sure. rules for the sake of rules. But I think we also need to appreciate the love of God to the point where it was like, we want to make sure we don't even get close to breaking God's laws. So we're going to make laws on top of laws. Now, when you lose the heart in that, I think that's where legalism comes in. But this makes sense. If I tell my, like, I think I've used this illustration before. Like, I tell my kids not to play in the street. Right. Right, because the street's a dangerous place. But I usually will tell them, especially my younger ones, don't pass the sidewalk because, you know, there's the the little park row, I call it, the eight feet of grass between the sidewalk and the street. I tell them not even to play there. Why? Because that is close to the danger zone. Now, are they safe in that grass? Yes. Is, is a car going to hit them while they're playing in that grass? Probably, you know, probably not. Right. But I put a buffer. I put a hedge. I don't even want them to get close to the danger zone. And I think 
a lot of the Pharisees and people, Jews in Jesus' day, did that same thing. Now they lost the heart and they said, no, God ordained that hedge. And to break that hedge is then to break God's law. That's where legalism crept in. But you can see the, the tremendous desire there. We want to do exactly what God said because we don't want to end up in exile again. We want to be able to keep our temple, uh, you know, because the first time they got exiled, the temple got destroyed. So let's make sure we do this to the letter. Let's put the mazoos up. Let's wear the phylacteries. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's recite this every time we lay down for the night, every time we get up. But if the heart's not in it, then that's where you run into legalism. Yeah, totally. And I think if, if you really look at it that way, you can't blame somebody for being a little bit, whether you want to call it legalistic or just passionate about it. You know, I've heard people make the same arguments today of, you know, if God is going to judge the United States and destroy the United States because of our sin, then us calling about American sin and saying maybe we shouldn't do these things or these things ultimately will save the union. So then therefore we should want to do that. You know, yeah. there and, and even those are some of the discussions that Lincoln's team and others were having at different points in our history where they were like, for us to preserve what we have, it's not unwise for us to push really hard and say, let's let's stay away from these boundaries. Let's stay in this camp. So I understand even where legalism comes from, and I know you do too. It's not a necessarily always an evil mindset. Sometimes it's just, uh, no, I'm going to be so careful that I stay away from all of these things. And in so doing, you believe I'm, perfect, I'm protecting my life or my family or my whatever, my nation. And you go, okay, I, I guess I sort of get it. And so when you think about the Shema and what it means, then none of the, none of the Jews would have been surprised when Jesus says, this is the most important commandment. They right. would have been like, yeah, we know that. We, right. we totally believe that. We're, we're living it out. Yeah, because well, because that's his response, right? Uh, you know, the scribe says, "You're right. You have said that, and it's more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices." And Jesus says, "You're not far from the kingdom of God," which is such an interesting statement. He doesn't say you are in the kingdom of God. He mm-hmm. says you're not far from it. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, the scribe was like, "Oh yeah, you got it." So obviously, the scribes asked other people this question before, and maybe had his own opinion on it. Yeah. Well, that's all we got for this episode. I mean, really, it's like, there's two huge packed concepts that I, I don't know that we always think about. And, and like I said, we're not always trying to give you everything. But here, when we think about it, you're not living in the Second Temple period. So, mm-hmm. I, so to some extent, we can't fully capture or imagine what it would have been like to be alive at that time. And then secondarily, the Shema is not just an important thing at the time of Jesus, but it's still incredibly important today. I mean, even if you, you see it all over the place in, in Jewish circles. So clearly uh, we need to be more, a little bit more in touch with maybe the first century idea of what's going on. Yeah, and keep reading it. That's right.